Psalm 72. This is the Word of God. So let's listen to it carefully. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious, precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And Matthew chapter 8, 28 to 34, our sermon text, where we see this king that was just spoken of in Psalm 72, seeking out the poor and needy to bring them help and causing his enemies to lick the dust before him. Matthew eight twenty-eight to 34. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, 
the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray now that he would bless it to us. Lord, again, we look to you to bless your word to us. We can have no fruition uh, from your word, no blessing from your word, receive no nourishment from us unless you come to the hard-baked soil of our hearts and you break it up, plow it up by your Holy Spirit. Turn it over and over and make it soft. And then, Lord, plant the word that it might take root, deep root, and bear fruit according to your purpose. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's been a few weeks uh, since we were in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. We're here at the end of chapter 8, and uh, uh, what we've been looking at since the end of chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount there, is Jesus' great authority. This is Matthew's burden in this part of his Gospel, Matthew chapter 8 and in chapter 9 as well, to show us just how authoritative and how powerful Jesus is. Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, ends with people marveling at the authority of his teaching. No one ever taught like this before. We never heard anyone teach like this. Our scribes don't teach like this. He teaches as one with authority. And then, chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 8, Matthew shows us scene after scene after scene of Jesus out acting with this authority. He taught with that authority. Now he's out acting with this authority. We saw it as he healed the leper with a single touch and as he, uh, as he healed the centurion's servant with a single word. As he stilled the raging sea, made it go calm as, as glass with, with a word by, by, his, by his awesome power. So Matthew's showing us his authority, his power here in, in, this, in this section of his gospel. But he's not just saying that Jesus has this great raw power. He's saying, look at Jesus' authority over our misery. Look at his authority to bring healing and peace and calm and wholeness and help. That's what the Scriptures promise the Messiah will do. That's what the Scriptures promise the King will do. He'll establish a kingdom where sickness disappears and death disappears and storms disappear, and the seas no more. The seas like glass. And in all these things, Jesus is, Jesus is showing that he's not just displaying power, but he's actually announcing the kingdom by these actions. Saying, my kingdom is here. My kingdom of resurrection life in the, in, in the, in the promised Messiah is here. The kingdom of eternal peace is coming. He's promising his own resurrection through his healing miracles. He's promising our resurrection through his healing miracles. He's showing us his great authority as the Messiah. He's showing us his great authority as God himself, too, isn't he? Calming the storm. Only God calms the storm. In the Old Testament, over and over, we read, God causes the storm and God calms the storm, and no one else does. 
And then Jesus does. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's been Matthew's point so far. And now he adds another piece, another scene, and he shows us another aspect of Jesus' authority as both the king, the Messiah promised, and as God. He says his authority reaches not only to our suffering, not only to the natural world, but it also extends over the devil and the powers of darkness. That Christ is the one who's come to crush the serpent's head, to crush Satan and his empire and his demons and his kingdom forever. That he has come as what the one Kevin DeYoung calls the snake crusher, uh, to deal the final mortal blow to the devil and his demons. The text begins in verse 28. Follow along with me as we work through the text together. We start in verse 28. Jesus and his disciples are coming ashore from, uh, from the lake, from the Sea of Galilee. Remember, they've just, he's just calmed the storm. Now they're coming ashore here on the other side of the lake in this place that's called the country of the Gergesenes, or some other translations have it, the Gadarenes. Immediately, I think the question is, why did Jesus and his disciples cross the lake in the first place? Why did they come here? Why did they get in the boat, go through the storm, come to this side of the lake? This isn't a typical destination for a Jew. It's not like they're just, this is the main route to get to the next important place. This is an out-of-the-way place. It's a Gentile-heavy population. Um, not the kind of place Jews would typically frequent. Not anybody there they seem to know. Jesus doesn't seem to have a particular uh, uh, mission there that, 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 uh, uh, that, that he tells us about beforehand. Whatever reasons may have been behind this, I think what is clear is that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus across the lake in the boat and his disciples with him in order to save these two demon-possessed men that Jesus has crossed the lake in order to save these two demoniacs, perhaps Gentiles, living in a Gentile-heavy area, as we said. Now think about that. Why did he come here? Right? Why would he seek out two outcasts living on the other side of the lake who, who he doesn't know? Why would he seek them out and, and, and go, go to them? They're, they're not Jews, uh, I don't think. Uh, they, they're possessed by evil spirits. They're not important people. They're living in tombs. They're not worthy recipients of his grace. They haven't sent and asked him for any help. But he goes all the way across the lake to them. There's a lesson for us here, I think. That again, we've seen this over and over throughout these accounts of Jesus' authority. It's that Jesus comes for the weak and the needy. He comes for the sick. He comes for the humble. He doesn't come for the rich and the great and you know the, the who's who. He comes for the poor and the obscure and the suffering and the sinner. He comes for those tormented. And this just highlights for us the graciousness of God and the graciousness of the kingdom of heaven and the graciousness of Christ, the king of this kingdom. We can get used to hearing God is gracious 
His kingdom is gracious. Christ is gracious. And it can become lost on us, I think. We, we can forget how just surprising the graciousness of God is. The graciousness of Christ is in His kingdom. That God came to earth to seek out two demoniacs on the other side of a lake and save them. That He, that he came to, to, to not to be served, but to serve, to seek and to save the lost. That God would do that for sinners is a marvel. It's not only surprising, a marvel, but it's also absolutely critical for our salvation, isn't it? Everything in our salvation depends on this gracious character of God. Because we're all spiritually the equivalent of those demoniacs on the other side of the lake that he's going to help aren't we? We're all spiritually enslaved, right? Uh, Apart from Christ, we're all spiritually slaves of the kingdom of darkness and the powers of darkness and under under the influence of Satan just as much as they were apart from Christ. No more power to free ourselves and no more worthy of being freed than they were. But he seeks us out because he's gracious. He loves his people. So Jesus comes to the country of the Gergesenes. And he and his disciples come ashore. He's coming to seek and to save the lost. And who are the lost? It's these two violent demoniacs, these two demon-possessed men. They're living in the tombs. They come out of the tombs to meet Jesus. Um, Matthew tells us there's two of them here. You might remember, if you know, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, they only mentioned one. Um, Probably there was a prominent one, a more well-known one, and a lesser-known one. And Matthew's just... Matthew was was probably there with Jesus, saw both men, includes both men in the story. Um, uh, But these two demon-possessed men come out to see Jesus. What's going on with this demon possession? We don't see much demon possession in the Old Testament. Um, we see a little in the book of Acts. And then we don't really see any at all in the epistles. Um, but we see it all over the place in the Gospels. What's it doing in the Gospels? All these demons all over the place possessing people in these dramatic and frightening and violent ways. Well, this is... This is, uh, this is exceptional. This isn't the ordinary way of things to have all this demon possession going on. Here in the Gospels, the, the king has come to establish his kingdom over against the powers of darkness. And Satan is throwing everything he has against him. That's why I think we see all, these, uh, all, all the powers of darkness railing against Christ and his kingdom with such frequency in the Gospels. So these two men... These two demon-possessed men, they've been possessed by a whole host of demons. Uh, These men don't speak their own words. The demons speak through them. These men don't act on their own. The demons control their actions. It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? These men have become not in their right minds, not in control of themselves at all. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're violent. They're uncontrollable. The text tells us that this place where they're living out here in the tombs is, uh, has become unpassable. No one can use that road anymore. Imagine. Picture this, picture this in our own situation, just to get an idea for what kind of 
how wild this must have been. Imagine that there's, you know, the cemetery right there on Pine Hill Road. There's two demoniacs living over there. And they're so violent and so out of control, you can't use that road anymore. That'd be terrifying. They come out to meet Jesus. I think presumably to attack him, right? They're violent. You can't use this road. They're, 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 they're uncontrollably violent. A host of demons and these two men come out. But then they see who they're up against. In verse 29, suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? They come out, right? But they see Jesus, and instantly they recognize this is the Son of God. This is the one who has infinite power and authority over us, who with one word can destroy us forever. And we don't stand a chance against him. Right? Even in their rebellion against him, hatred against him, they're terrified of him. And they know with, 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 the, 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 with, with, with certainty and with terror that this is the Son of God. This is an important point in the text for us that they point out Jesus is the Son of God here. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Well, of course, it means that he is equal with God himself, right? He's the eternal Son of God from before the foundation of the world, from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. Um, John chapter 5, verse 18, we're told the reason the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus is because he's made himself equal with his Father by calling God his Father and calling himself God's Son. And so the uh, kind of authority that Jesus has as Son of God is complete, total authority over these evil spirits. But the title also refers to the Messiah, also refers to the Christ, not just to the ontological, eternal second person of the Trinity, but also the Messiah, long promised. We see this in John chapter 1, 49. These two ideas are brought together. Nathanael says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The demons seem to be aware of this as well, that by calling Jesus the Son of God, they are understanding this is the Messiah, the one who's promised to crush us and defeat us. Because what do they say next? They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? See, we know what the Son of God's mission is, what the Messiah's mission is. It's to destroy the works of the devil. We know that when you appear, our time is up. But they know it's not the final judgment yet. And they're hoping, perhaps, or afraid, perhaps, that he's going to destroy them before the time. What is so remarkable in the account here, brothers and sisters, um, is that right, just a few moments ago in this story, these demons, this legion of demons, was the unquestioned authority in this area, weren't they? Right? They had the power, the authority, the uncontrollable power was, was theirs. But now they've suddenly become servile. They're, they're groveling at Jesus' feet in complete terror and fear before him. 
and, 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 and Jesus hasn't even said a word yet. He hasn't said anything. And they're just terrified on the ground, on their faces, as it were, before him. They go on. They beg him. Uh, they, they, they beg him uh, to uh, let them, uh, if he's going to cast them out, to, to send them into this herd of pigs that's some distance off. We'll talk in a bit about the pigs. I know it's interesting. What's up with the pigs? Um, we'll, we'll get there. But that's not the point right here, right? The point is, the point is that the demons are just helpless before Jesus. They're like a dog, right? An obedient dog, submissive before a master, right? Just completely at his command. It's a glorious thing. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who's come to crush and destroy the works of the devil and the works of darkness. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, they recognize that this is the, the Christ who's going to crush them and destroy them and defeat them. Even before Jesus says a word. Then finally, verse 32, Jesus does speak. He says one word in this whole story. One word. Go. That's it. A command. Go. And they're gone. Just like that. They leave these two men. They leave the men. They rush out of them. And they rush into this herd of pigs that's standing some ways off on the side of a steep hill. And, uh, and, and they enter the pigs. And uh, immediately uh, the pigs rush down the hill and are drowned in the sea. The demons aren't obeying Jesus willingly and cheerfully but they are obeying him nonetheless. Against every fiber of their being, they crumple before him because he has such awesome authority and power. If you were to amass on one side Satan and all the powers of darkness, all the demons, and on the other side, Jesus Christ alone in his weakest moment, he would be stronger. He would be mightier. He has all authority over them. That's a glorious thing. That's good news for us, brothers and sisters. Is that good news to you? That Jesus Christ has authority over demons? It might might strike us as a bit strange, right? Um, It's good news to me that my sins are forgiven. I, I often think about that. I often rejoice in that and thank God for that and, and praise Him for it. It's good news to me that I have eternal life in Christ. I rejoice in that. I'm sure you do as well. I, I rejoice that I've been saved from the wrath of God. How often do we rejoice that we've been saved from the powers of darkness, from demons, and from the power of Satan? Our culture is a very anti-supernatural culture, and perhaps this is part of it, that we've, we've, we've picked some of this up. Uh, our culture makes demons into cartoon characters, right? Sits on your shoulder and whispers uh, bad ideas into your ear, um, which, of course, is not at all what Scripture tells us. Scripture takes demons seriously. It treats them as real beings, powerful beings. It doesn't go into a lot of detail, and we should respect that and not go prying and speculating, but it treats them as real and serious and present And so should we. Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, is full of this language. It speaks about it like this. It talks about our ancient foe, 
who doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. He speaks in the hymn of the world that's this, this world with devils filled, which threatens to undo us. He talks about the prince of darkness, Grimm, who rages against us. That's how Luther, biblically, I think, thought about the Christian life. And that's how we should as well. Luther's not exaggerating. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, verses 11 to 12. He says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul treats demons and the powers of darkness as real and as a real fight going on with them in the Christian life and in the life of our church. You don't have to be demon-possessed to be at war with the powers of darkness. Every single human being, brothers and sisters, who is not trusting in Christ is enslaved to Satan and the powers of darkness and the kingdom of darkness. That's a terrifying thing to consider, isn't it? That there are real spiritual beings with tremendous power, more power than us, who hate us and would love to destroy us and would seek to destroy us. And apart from Christ, we can do nothing about it. It's a very frightening thought. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has conquered them, that Jesus has all authority over them, that he can do with them whatever he wants. And so, yes, we rejoice in this. It's good news that I've been freed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ, the beloved Son, and saved from the powers of darkness. That the the, the powers of darkness, if I'm trusting in Christ, they no longer have any authority over me or any power over me at all because Christ is my king. I'm in his kingdom now, not in theirs anymore. And even as my war against the powers of darkness goes on, as I fight with temptation from here to glory, Christ is with me. Christ will strengthen me. I'm not under the authority of the powers of darkness any longer. I'm not wrestling in my strength. I'm wrestling by Christ's strength. In fact, the same spirit that filled Jesus Christ as he faced those demons there on the shore of Galilee, that spirit's in me. And you, if you trust in Christ... You have nothing to fear. Every reason to trust in Christ, isn't there? Find that sweet comfort and that encouragement. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want Christ? And that protection and that safety and that uh, confidence and that peace of mind. But one of the most striking things about this story, brothers and sisters, is how it ends. Because it turns out a lot of people in the country of the Gerasenes don't seem to want this Christ and what he offers, after all. Let's go back to the pigs. Because they, uh, they are where the crux of the matter is for the people in the country of the Gerasenes. After the demons enter the pigs, the pigs, Mark tells us there's about 2,000 of them. Picture that. 2,000 pigs running down a hill and drowning in the, drowning in the water. What a scene. Mark tells, uh, Matthew tells us that um, the people who had been watching the pigs 
suddenly find themselves out of a job, so they run back to town to tell everyone what just happened. They tell everyone what happened, right? You can imagine the shock on people's faces. 2,000 pigs suddenly bolted down a hill and drowned themselves in the lake. And then they they also tell them about the the demon-possessed men, those maniacs, those uncontrollable lunatics who are suddenly in their right minds, sitting peaceably, speaking with Jesus. And and it all happened because Jesus said one word, go. So they go, they tell the story in the town. People are astonished. The whole town comes out to meet Jesus. But what do they do? At the end of verse 34, we read these, these words, tragic words. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. What? You've just seen what you've seen, and you're asking him to leave? Don't you want to find out who this is? Who has this kind of power and authority that makes the demons flee? Don't you want to find out who this is? Don't you want to hear what he has to say? Right? They don't realize that they're asking the only hope of salvation they have to leave them alone. They're asking the king of the kingdom to go away. Why are they doing this? Well, I think the first reason is found in the 2,000 pigs lying in the water. But someone just lost a lot of money. Someone just lost all his pigs. That was a big investment. That was his livelihood. Maybe it was the livelihood of more than one. Never mind that Jesus just saved these two guys who've been living in the cemetery. I lost my pigs. I don't want anything to do with this man, Jesus. D.A. Carson comments on this, puts it very memorably. He says, They preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. We might ask, well, who on earth would do that, right? Value pigs above people or or pigs above Jesus himself. But brothers and sisters, right? We put the question a little differently, right? Who would ever think to put financial gain, financial security, material possessions above the value of a human being or above Christ himself? And we find the question striking closer to home. The question looks silly, right? When you stand far away, who would ever value a herd of pigs more than the Savior of the world? But when they're your pigs, when they're your possessions and the things that you value and the things you depend on, then it comes down right to it, right? When you realize that Christ has all authority and at a moment's notice He could do away with all it if He pleased, that's a frightening place to be. And that brings us, I think, to the second reason, and perhaps the bigger reason they're asking Jesus to leave. He just has too much power and authority. He's too disruptive. Brothers and sisters, it's possible that some of the attitude of the Gerasenes can seep into our hearts sometimes. Jesus is just too disruptive. His power, his authority that we see here is just, it's it's too much. It's better to have some distance from him. It's better not to get too close to him. When you take that attitude, though, when we take that attitude, we're doing the same thing that the people of the Gerasenes 
are doing. We're, we're shutting our eyes to two things. We're shutting our eyes to the fact, like them, that we need a savior from the powers of darkness. That, that right, the, 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 the people here in this region, the townspeople, didn't realize they were all just as enslaved to the powers of darkness as those two maniacs in the cemetery had been. They didn't realize that because they weren't actually demon-possessed, they were still under the kingdom of darkness. But they were. They didn't realize they needed a savior who has all authority over that kingdom of darkness to come in and to rescue them from it and bring them into his kingdom of life and blessing. He's the only savior. There is no one else to go to. He is the one to whom we must flee. They're also blind, I think, to Jesus' goodness. All they see is his power, just sheer brute power without his goodness. They don't, they don't notice this. They don't notice the mercy and grace and goodness of the Savior as he came to show this compassion to these two tormented men there. They just see this, this authority and they are scared of it. They don't see the goodness of the Savior. They don't wait to hear about the forgiveness of sins. And, 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 and the, the, the call to repentance and, and the way to enter the kingdom of heaven by being poor in spirit and humbling yourself before him and seeking his grace. They didn't wait to hear about his goodness. They just see his power and they're terrified. And, uh, and they, they leave, ask him to leave. They don't realize that his power is always coupled with righteousness and wisdom and holiness and goodness and love for his people that he always, always is good. That he came to give his life for sinners, to die for sinners, to save sinners. And so they beg him. They beg him to leave. Brothers and sisters, let us do the opposite. Let us beg him to stay. Beg him to be closer. Beg him to come closer to you with his great power and authority to command everything in your life but also His goodness and His grace to seek and to save you, a lost sinner. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for sending such a glorious King who is so powerful, mighty to save. Thank You that He came to seek and to save we who were lost. Lord, we pray that You would by your grace, continue to keep us close to Christ. We ask it for his dear sake. Amen.